The case is submitted. We'll hear argument next in number 9516, Jill S. Kamen versus Kemper Financial Services. Spectators are admonished. The court remains in session. There's to be no talking in the courtroom until you get out beyond the walls here. Mr. Meyer, you may proceed whenever you're ready. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this action was brought by a shareholder of Cash Equivalent Fund to recover damages for two wrongs. The one at issue before the Court today is a proxy violation, the deception of the fund shareholders by a proxy statement which induced them to approve a management agreement with the investment advisor, which I will refer to as KFS, by misrepresenting comparative fees paid to KFS by other mutual funds managed by KFS. That misrepresentation was in violation of rules of the Securities and Exchange Commission. The Meyer, can I just ask one question? What, what remedy do you seek for that violation? We, we are seeking damages. And, and then who is the we? To whom would the damages be paid? The, we ask that the damages be paid to the fund. To? To Cash Equivalent Fund, which is the mutual fund. I see. So it's in the nature of a derivative action, then? This is a matter which the Solicitor General takes a somewhat different view of. We have always taken the view that it is in the nature of a derivative action, yes. This, the matter now before the Court, requires the review of an unprecedented holding by the Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit that the claim must be dismissed. Seventh Circuit. Seventh Circuit, I beg your pardon. That the claim must be dismissed because a plaintiff must, prior to bringing the action, in all cases, make a pre-complaint demand upon the Board of Directors to bring the action, even if such a demand would be futile. I propose to discuss this morning three questions. First, whether a demand must be made, even though futile. Second, the practical consequences of requiring a pre-complaint demand. And finally, the question of what law applies. On the first question, whether a demand must be made, even if futile. You answer that question without explaining first what law applies. I agree. Are you going to say it doesn't make any difference? I am going to say that it doesn't make any difference. That's correct. And the order, I agree, Justice White, does suggest that it is presented in inverse order, but I believe that you will see that as the argument unfolds, the conclusions become compelling. At least I hope they will become compelling. Beginning with the question of making a demand when it is futile, it's an ancient 
precept of the common law uh, that the law does not require a feudal act. And that precept has been applied to demand on directors uh, by this Court in cases going back well over a 100 years. Uh, the decision by the uh, Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit is the only judicial decision that I have been able to find or that has been cited by any party suggesting that even though the demand is futile, it must nevertheless uh, be made. Uh, these futility... It, it has been proposed by, by several uh, respected uh, organizations such as uh, uh, the American Bar Association, I gather, and uh, uh, the American Law Institute. The American Law Institute and the American Bar Association have adopted uh, taking the American Law Institute, which has been a little more active in the area, uh, a what they call a tentative draft, which is I think they're now up to tentative draft number 10, uh, which suggests uh, what is called the universal demand requirement. That is, demand may be made in every case and uh, that uh, this will uh, obviate the uh, difficulty of determining whether or not the demand is in fact futile. It will uh, compel a demand and indeed this is somewhat in line with the reasoning of the Seventh Circuit, which cites at some length the uh, tentative draft of the American Law Institute. The basic it, excuse me. It goes along with this. Does the American Law Institute, like the Seventh Circuit opinion here, also say that the business judgment rule would not be applied to the uh, uh, determination of the uh, directors? The, uh, no, I don't believe they, they say that. Uh, on the contrary, the basic rationale followed by the Court of Appeals in this case is that the introduction of a universal demand requirement is suggested by the recent developments in the growth of special litigation committees, even where uh, as in the present case, the Board of Directors is directly implicated in the wrong, uh, the court below says uh, the Board can create a special litigation committee by perhaps by expanding its number, bringing in people who were not involved in the wrongdoing. These committees supposedly will dispassionately uh, review the facts of the matter, make a recommendation to the Board of Directors, and uh, the Board will act accordingly. Uh, well, Mr. Meyer, under the Seventh Circuit's view, if a demand is made and refused, what's the legal effect of that on it, the suit? Can it go forward? That, that is a question. Under the Seventh Circuit's holding? That, that, is, a, that is a question that, that has not been answered. And the Seventh and Circuit... And how do you understand its holding in that regard? I, I, underst effect? I understand it uh, in the following way. That assuming that a 
a special litigation committee is formed and makes a recommendation, which invariably is a recommendation that the litigation not go forward. That's invariably the case. Well, it may or may not be. Let's assume it is a recommendation not to go forward. All right. Uh, The question then becomes one of reviewing the determination of the Special Litigation Committee. And the focus of the litigation has now changed. We are now looking to see not whether the original complaint of conduct was inappropriate. We're not looking to see whether a fiduciary accused of self-dealing has satisfied the fiduciary's normal burden of justifying the intrinsic fairness of his dealings with his corporation. We are looking instead to see whether an independent committee, A, had some kind of uh, bias or conflict of interest, and B, whether it exercised a judgment that was so egregious that no reasonable businessman could be said to have come to a similar judgment. This is such an enormous burden to place upon a shareholder who is, in in this particular case and in many of these cases, uh, attempting to enforce the public policies, important well, public then, then policies. Well, then the legal issue changes, as I understand you, Mr. Meyer. Uh, the plaintiff has a harder row to hoe if a demand is made and turned down than if the plaintiff can simply show that a demand would be futile? Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I submit that the plaintiff has an impossible. uh, Well, could you answer my question? I asked you to compare two burdens. Yes, the the burden of reviewing, uh, the burden that the plaintiff has where a demand is made and turned down is virtually insuperable. Well, so the futility exception really gives the plaintiff a leg up then. It it allows it to litigate under different standards than if a demand is turned down? That's correct. That's correct. And the futility exception is the one that has been recognized by this court for well over 100 years and by every court that has ever passed upon the question. But, Mr. Meyer, excuse me, I thought the Seventh Circuit had explicitly repudiated imposing upon the, the disappointed pl- would-be plaintiff that kind of a burden. I thought at, what at the Seventh Circuit is saying is in exchange for always requiring uh, uh, a request to be made, we will not impose the, uh, the normal business judgment rule. At, at one point in its opinion, the Seventh Circuit does suggest that. At other points in its opinion, it suggests quite the contrary. But I submit to you that the first suggestion made by the Seventh Circuit, I don't know if it comes in that order, but in, in, the, in our discourse, it, it's the first suggestion, is an illogical suggestion to follow. After all, why go to the trouble of forming a special litigation committee, having it go through an extensive investigation, hiring counsel, making a report, and then coming back to the court and the court saying, we're going to totally ignore it, Uh, we will pretend it hasn't occurred, and we will review 
the bringing of the litigation as though it didn't exist. Manifestly, it must have some purpose. And manifestly, if these special litigation committees are to exist, which ineluctably follows from the imposition of a universal demand requirement, then the courts must give some deference to the recommendations of special litigation. I thought the Seventh Circuit went through, I don't know where it is in the opinion, oh, yes, uh, on, on 13A of, of, uh, of the petition for cert. We seem to be dealing with 13A and 14A today. Uh, uh, the opinion gives four reasons why demand may be inappropriate, and, and it, it went through the, the bases, possible bases for requiring demand, and, and only one of which is what you've, you've just addressed. Another purpose of it is to let the corporation take over the suit if it wishes. Now, that, that purpose would be fully served whether or not you apply the business judgment rule. There are uh, a number of reasons why demand may not be futile. In this case, clearly demand was futile. And I would submit that uh, the arguments that even where it is futile, some good may nevertheless come out of making a demand is not really an appropriate consideration for courts to consider. Uh, for example, in the Fox case, which is oft-cited in the briefs, uh, the, the court came to the conclusion uh, that uh, demand would be futile because under the statute, uh, the corporation was disabled from bringing the claim. Now, that's a little bit different from what we have here. but. In that case, the petitioner uh, argued that even though the corporation could not bring the claim, also involved a mutual fund, demand would serve many useful intra-corporate purposes. Uh, it would cause the directors to focus on the contract with the investment advisor. They might revise the contract. They might even fire the investment advisor, uh, all other uh, intracorporate uh, rearrangements could be made. That's always true, but I submit that the purpose of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, uh, while undoubtedly having some effect on corporate governance, are really directed toward uh, corporate litigation and not with the uh, operation of uh, corporate law uh, internally. And uh, therefore, I don't uh, subscribe, obviously, to uh, the, uh, the uh, Seventh Circuit's uh, views on this matter. Uh, the third point that I want to talk to, and I, I would like to uh, address this as briefly as possible because I do want to reserve, uh, if permitted, some time for rebuttal. The third point I want to address is, is what law applies to the case. Uh, our view is that uh, state law should apply to the case, in this case, Maryland law, uh, unless uh, that state law is so inconsistent with the enforcement of the important federal public policies underlying the proxy rules, in this case, Section 20 of the Investment Company Act, that to insist 
upon the enforcement of the rule and impose burdens upon plaintiffs seeking to enforce that public policy uh, would thwart the public policy. Uh, This may sound like a uh, heads-I-win, tails-you-lose proposition, uh, but there is support for it uh, in the cases. Galef versus Alexander, which is cited in our brief, is on point. We also mention Levitt versus Johnson, uh, and there is Where, What courts decided these cases? Th- these are appellate courts, the uh, circuit courts. Federal courts of appeal. Federal courts of appeal. There is a decision uh, by this court in Boyle versus United Technologies, uh, which did indicate that uh, federal uh, common law would prevail where uh, state tort law would threaten uh, a result that was contrary to what was involved in that case, the government defense a contractor uh, defense. Uh, unless there are further questions, I would like to reserve the remaining time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Meyer. Mr. Dreven, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Prior to the decision below, it was the law in virtually all jurisdictions that shareholders need not make demand before commencing a derivative action where that demand would be futile. In this case, the Court of Appeals abolished the traditional futility exception and replaced it with a rule that requires universal demand in every case. In our view, the Court of Appeals erred in addressing this question as one of federal common law for the Courts of Appeals to decide as they perceive the policy balances to require. Rather, state law should govern this area of core governance of corporations' internal affairs, absent a conflict with federal policy. Mr. Dreeben, that's a little odd, isn't it? Because this is uh, an action brought under a federal statute. That's correct, Justice Sotomayor. Federal cause of action. And the cases saying that you nevertheless look to state law are a little unusual, seems to me. I I think the case that's closest related to the particular problem here today is Burks versus Lasker. It's quite similar, really. It was another derivative action under the Investment Company Act. Yes. I guess I just don't understand that case and and why, when you have a cause of action based on violation of a federal law, you would have to look to state law uh, for one of these initial sort of procedural requirements. Well, there are two responses I'd like to give to that. Uh, First of all, uh, the question of whether demand is required or not is a federal question because the cause of action arises under a federal statute. There's no doubt about that. The next issue is, from what source does federal law derive the rule of decision? This Court has, in many contexts, held that even when a question is governed by federal law, federal law may turn to state law rather than fashioning an entire body of law on its own. I think the Kimball Foods case is the outstanding example of this, and the Court applied a very similar principle in Burks versus Lasker when it comes to the law of corporations. Uh, corporations, after all, are created under state law. Uh, When Congress regulated in the Investment Company Act, as it did in the other Securities Acts to to regulate corporate activities, it did not provide for federal chartering 
of corporations. It relied on states to charter corporations and to basically regulate the activities of corporations subject only to the predominant federal policy. So federal law displaces state law to the extent it's necessary to achieve federal goals. Otherwise, what state if the law state law uh, says that there will be a demand made in every case? The, that, in our view, the initial step for a court to follow is to, to adopt that rule and then to consider whether it infringes any federal policy to follow it. Um, that question, of course, isn't here today since we don't have a state that, that provided for universal demand, although there are several. Um, I think that the, the, the real way to answer whether it conforms to federal policy is to look at what happens after demand is made. Uh, does that does the making of demand in a particular state give the corporation a leg up in dismissing the derivative action? If it does, uh, and the corporation is invested with too much power to cut off a federal claim, there may very well be a conflict with federal policy. But it probably will not flow from the demand requirement itself. It more likely will flow from what happens after demand is made and refused. And how do you read the Seventh Circuit's holding about insofar as that is concerned? Well, the Seventh Circuit thought it could uh, achieve a nice distinction, a very logical, tidy distinction between a federal rule of universal demand and state law governing what happens after demand is made. Um, the problem with that approach is, although it sounds nice in theory, in fact, it doesn't work. The reason it doesn't work is because many states place an integral connection between whether a shareholder has to make demand and what standard of review is subsequently applied to the board of directors' decision. So Delaware, for example, which is a leading state in corporate law, says that if a demand is required of the shareholder and not excused, then the director's subsequent decision not to sue is, is judged very deferentially under the business judgment rule. On the other hand, if demand is futile because the board is either biased uh, or in too implicated in the transaction to act on it, then a much higher standard of review applies when the corporation attempts to terminate the suit. Mr. Dreven, I understood the Seventh Circuit to avoid that problem by federalizing the latter question as well. Well, that is by saying uh, how much uh, deference you give to the board decision is also a federal question, and we will not adopt, as a matter of federal law, the business judgment rule. Well, I, I, I'm not sure that the, that the court said exactly either of those things. If it said, if it thought it was saying that it's a federal question, what standard of review applies to the board of directors' decision, then in effect it overruled Burks versus Lasker. Because Burks versus Lasker held that the power of corporate directors to terminate a derivative action, even based on a federal statute, derives in the first instance from state law, unless it conflicts with federal policy. So there's a two-pronged inquiry. I don't think that the Court of Appeals actually intended that. I think what the Court of Appeals thought is that we can have a federal rule, which it thought was procedural, of universal demand, followed by the application of state law as it's found. But the real difficulty with, with that proposition, I think, is that State law simply does not draw the distinction between demand and the standard of review in every instance. In some cases, in many, it ties them together. And once a shareholder makes a demand under Delaware law, the business judgment rule applies in every single case. So under the Seventh Circuit's federal universal demand rule, you have two options. One option would be to say, since the shareholder made a demand, we now apply the Delaware standard of review. It's the business judgment rule in every single case even though Delaware might have applied a different standard because demand was actually futile. The other alternative, that alternative, I think, is not only conceptually incorrect, it overrides state policy. 
uh, needlessly. The other alternative would be for the court to engage in a hypothetical inquiry. Would Delaware have excused demand in this case? If we answer that question, we'll then know what standard of review Delaware wanted to apply. Uh, but if you engage in that inquiry, you're right back where you started. You're litigating demand futility, and the Court of Appeals rule serves no purpose. The basic reason why the Court of Appeals got off on the wrong foot, I think, is it evaluated the demand question as one of federal procedure. It's really not. It's really a rule that governs substantive law of corporate internal affairs. A corporation may have a claim that can be asserted in court, uh, but it is an artificial entity, and the question in a derivative action is who has the right to speak for a corporation? Normally, it's the board of directors under state law. But state law almost universally recognizes an exception for derivative actions where the directors have wrongfully refused to protect corporate claims. Uh, in that instance, shareholders may step in and speak for the corporation. The demand rule stands as a threshold requirement that helps to regulate when shareholders can do that. The demand rule says that before shareholders may take the extraordinary step of usurping the board of directors' prerogatives, they have to make a demand on the directors to see whether the directors want to take over the suit or how they will react to it to give them a chance to make a corporate judgment. State law, however, recognizes that in some instances it would only obstruct the protection of shareholder rights, who are, after all, the owners of the corporation to have to go to the very board of directors that may be implicated in well, the Well, how, how would it obstruct them if, if you can do pretty much what you, uh, what you uh, want in the way of prosecuting your suit after a demand is turned down? Wouldn't it, it simplify things? It, it would simplify things if there were a coherent way of applying it and, and the way of applying it were consistent with federal law. But the way that, that many states regulate derivative actions is that if demand is excused, the courts take a more active role in regulating the director's efforts to cut it off. If demand is required, then the directors have a greater power. They can rely on their business judgment and say, this derivative action should be terminated. Well, might not the states change some of their laws if, uh, in that regard, if a demand under the statute were, were treated as a matter of federal law and what you say you, you require in every case? Well, it, it's certainly possible the states might be forced to change their internal law of corporations if federal law reached out and grabbed a portion of it. Uh, but the, the, there is no authorization. The, the, the whole statute is a federal statute. I mean, it's, it specifies well, what, what the basis of suit is. It's not if you're, as if you're suing under a state cause of action. That's true, Chief Justice Rehnquist. And if the court in Burks versus Lasker had ruled that it is always a federal question when directors can terminate a derivative action under a federal statute, then we would not be here today arguing that state law is the primary source. But once Burks versus Lasker and, and its principles are established, uh, there is really no alternative but to borrow the coherent set of state law rather than simply taking one piece of it here and another piece of it from federal law. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Dreven. Mrs. Hall, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the District Court correctly dismissed the proxy claim in this case and the Court of Appeals correctly affirmed that dismissal. We respectfully submit that regardless of whether this Court chooses to apply federal law or state law, and regardless of whether the futility exception is applied or the futility exception is abolished, this Court should affirm the dismissal of the proxy claim in this case. I would like to make three points. First, both courts below co correctly concluded 
that the allegations of futility in the complaint in this case were totally inadequate to excuse the making of a demand upon the directors. Second, both courts below correctly concluded that federal law should apply in dealing with the demand issue on this federal cause of action. And third, the Court of Appeals correctly held that under federal law, the futility exception to the demand requirement should be eliminated in order to to promote important policies underlying the demand requirement, including judicial economy. Turning first to the insufficiency of the allegations, the District Court found that if you disregard the conclusory allegations in petitioner's complaint, only two factual allegations of futility remain, that the directors received fees for serving as directors, and the directors voted to send out the challenged proxy material. Petitioner cites no case, state or federal, in which boilerplate allegations of futility such as these have been held to excuse demand. The federal law, as to facts uh, which would be sufficient to excuse the making of a demand, is well stated in the Kaufman case. In Kaufman, the First Circuit said that demand could be excused only upon a particularized showing that the directors are so antagonistic to the interests of the corporation that they could not discharge their duties. In our case, the directors are not named as defendants, nor are they alleged to have engaged in any wrongdoing whatsoever. This is particularly significant because full discovery on the merits was available to petitioner in this case. Ms. Hall, you, you may be dead right that the allegations are insufficient, but neither the Court of Appeals, the Court of Appeals didn't rely on that ground, did it? And they the, did, Your Honor. They did, Your Honor. But the questions presented by the cert petition don't raise that. I thought we took a case assuming that there were sufficient allegations. Uh, you may be right, but I'm just saying I'm not sure that's one of the issues we're, we're, we're addressing under the cert petition. Uh, I think that issue uh, is properly before the Court and that it provides an independent ground for affirming the uh, judgment of dismissal, Your Honor. And it also is uh, one part of the uh, holding of the Court of Appeals. The Seventh Circuit has alternative holdings. Uh, they specifically find that the allegations are insufficient, and then they go forward with this alternative holding abolishing the futility exception. And we say that's all di- well, it's an alternative holding rather than dicta, then? It is an alternative holding, we believe. Uh, the Seventh Circuit expressly states uh, that the district court found the allegations of futility insufficient, as do we. Well, I, see, I, see, I didn't understand. <laughs> At both A16 yeah. and A17 of the Seventh Circuit opinion, uh, the Seventh Circuit uh, finds the allegations of utility to be uh, insufficient. Uh, at A16, Your Honor, the uh, Court of Appeals states, uh, the District Court thought these allegations insufficient to excuse a demand under Rule 23.1, as do we. That's at the uh, conclusion of the first paragraph under mm-hmm. Rome Normal 1. Uh, And at uh, A17, um, no, I've got the wrong uh, page number there. Well, there's another uh, place in the opinion where the uh, uh, district court, the Court of Appeals refers to the able opinion of the uh, uh, Court of Appeals, finding that these allegations of futility are insufficient, and then states, we are in accord. What's your... Even A16, I have a 
I think if you say 6A, Ms. Hall, I'm sorry, 6A. you'll get to the portion of the appendix where the as-do-we language. 6A, Your Honor, Roman numeral 1, the first paragraph, the last sentence in the paragraph. Judge Norbert thought these allegations insufficient to excuse a demand under Rule 23.1, as do we. Well, but what they do, but, but for, for, for quite separate reason that you always have to make a demand. That's how I interpreted that. I think it's an alternative holding, Your Honor, and, and provides an alternative ground for affirmance of the dismissal in this case. I, 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 don't, I don't see. It isn't necessarily alternative. I, I, then they go, he goes on to explain why we do. And the reason we do is that you always have to make a demand. And therefore, these allegations are not sufficient to excuse a demand. Isn't that the... In- I, well, uh, I, think he, I think he also reviews these particular allegations and finds them insufficient and goes on to say, uh, in addition, that he is uh, abolishing uh, futility as an exception to the demand requirement. Uh, Your Honors, even after substantial discovery in this case, uh, Petitioner uh, uh, did not make any charges of wrongdoing against these directors. um, And we think that the uh, uh, allegations of futility in this case were completely uh, inadequate, uh, whether the Court chooses to apply uh, federal law or state law. Uh, We think that uh, both courts below properly uh, chose to apply federal law uh, to the demand issue in this federal cause of action for two reasons. Uh, the first reason is uh, that petitioner induced both courts below to apply federal law and waived any argument that state law applies. Petitioner cited only federal law to the district court. Uh, petitioner did not mention state law until her reply brief in the Court of Appeals. And even then, she argued only that if the court did not apply federal law, then state law should be applied. The, district, the uh, Court of Appeals found that the state law argument had been waived relying upon a rule of that court, a rather unremarkable rule, which holds that uh, reply briefs are to be limited to matters in reply. The Court of Appeals has consistently applied that rule in both civil and criminal cases. Uh, Petitioner here failed to comply with that rule, and the Court of Appeals uh, properly concluded that the state law argument uh, had been waived. What should apply in another suit where the state law argument is not waived? Uh, In that instance, uh, Justice O'Connor, we submit that uh, uh, federal law would apply, and that's the second reason uh, why we think federal law properly applies in this case. In Burks, this court uh, stated that uh, legal rules that govern federal causes of action are to be treated as raising federal questions. And since federal law applies to this federal cause of action, the question then becomes, what is the source of this federal law? Uh, Is the federal court going to look to federal common law or to state law? In Burks, this court looked to state law to supply the federal rule of decision on the question regarding directors' uh, power to terminate shareholders' derivative litigation. The court found that applying state law to the corporate law issue in that case would relieve the federal court of the burden of fashioning out of whole cloth an entire body of federal corporate law. We submit that this case is much different than Burke's. This case also involves a federal cause of action, so federal law applies. But at the next step, 
which is selecting the source of the federal law, we submit that there is no need here to look to state law. Here, the federal court has a fully developed body of federal common law of demand, which stems from this court's decision in Hawes in 1882, which created a demand requirement. Here, the court does not need to fashion entirely out of whole cloth a uh, law of federal common law of demand. That law already exists. Well, how about the question of the effect of the demand requirement? What happens uh, if the demand is rejected? Now what law do we look to? Uh, Your Honor, the question of standard of review is not before the Court in this case, and uh, the Commission is in agreement with us on that point, uh, that this Court should not reach that issue in this case. We certainly have to be concerned with it, because it seems to me the questions are very much interrelated. We think, Your Honor, that under Burke's, the question of standard of review would be governed by state law, uh, and, in fact, uh, that uh, statement appears in the, in the opinion of, of the uh, Court of Appeals. But I, I take it the Solicitor General's point is that that just brings us around to where we began, because Delaware's law is predicated on the assumption that there are two types of situations, one where there's demand and one where there's demand excused. And the reason that Delaware can afford to be very to give great deference to its directors in the demand required uh, case is because there are a whole other class of cases where demand is excused and the suits can then go forward without that deference. So you're really asking us to apply state law, which has not at all been developed, uh, for the contingency of demand being required in every case. Uh, That is the Solicitor General's argument, is it not? I believe it is, Your Honor. I can't speak for the Solicitor General. Uh, let me say again that the standard of review is not presented in this case, and there are no questions of Delaware law presented in this case. Well, but State law I, I'm suggesting, as Justice law. O'Connor suggested, I believe, that it's necessarily involved, because you're asking us to adopt a standard that might be completely unworkable. I think the standard is not unworkable, Your Honor. Uh, what the Court of Appeals did was to adopt a very straightforward rule, rule that in every derivative case, the shareholder must make a demand before proceeding to the federal court. Uh, the Court of Appeals said nothing about what the standard of review should be. Therefore, what the Court of Appeals has done applies only to steps that the shareholder must take before the shareholder is permitted to go to court. Uh, after the shareholder goes to court, uh, the this very same state law, which now exists, can be applied. Only at that time... But that law provides either no answer or an answer that is quite incorrect because it's premised on a false assumption. No, at that point, for example, in a case which Delaware characterizes now as uh, demand excused, the shareholder plaintiff would still be required, under the Court of Appeals opinion, to make a demand. However, the shareholder could then file suit if the demand was uh, refused and contend that this is a case in which demand should have been excused. The federal court could then rule upon that with the benefit of actual experience rather than having to deal with hypothetical facts about what the board would have done had it been presented with a demand. It it may well be that even though you do come full circle, I suppose, and have to confront the same state law issues, you may not have to do it in as many cases. That's correct, Your Honor. In some of the cases, presumably, the corporation will 
decide to take up the cudgels on behalf of the uh, shareholder? Either the corporation will decide to uh, take up the cudgels on behalf of the shareholders, or, in fact, uh, the board of directors of a corporation, when they are uh, presented with demand, have a whole range of intra-corporate dispute resolution mechanisms available to them. Uh, For example, the shareholder may be acting on mistaken information. The corporation may be able to uh, furnish correct information and settle the dispute uh, that way. There's a whole range of options that the uh, board of directors can exercise when presented with a, with a demand, which may totally obviate the suit so that it never, uh, never but, appears but, in the But suit. where those options do fail, uh, you really don't have any answer to the SG's argument that uh, you may have to get into the same kind of inquiry uh, that, uh, that we've up to now been conducting or the courts have been conducting under the uh, uh, futility uh, rubric. I have two answers. One is the answer we've already discussed, which is that some of those cases may never end up in court. The second answer is if they do end up in court, the court can then conduct its analysis on the basis of actual facts rather than hypotheticals, which is how litigation normally is conducted. Uh, This case uh, uh, differs from Burke's uh, for another reason, uh, which is that uh, the court in Burke's, in dealing with the question of uh, when uh, directors may properly terminate shareholders' litigation was concerned with an issue of the director's powers, which this court found to be a core issue of corporate law. Uh, Mrs. Hall, more, more precisely, what exactly was the question decided in, in, in Burke's uh, what, as to what the directors could do? Was it whether they should, would prosecute litigation or whether they would terminate a shareholder's prosecution? I believe the precise question, Your Honor, was whether they had the power to terminate, uh, whether a special litigation committee appointed by the Board of Directors had the power to terminate a suit brought under the 1940 Act. Uh, brought by, by a shareholder. By the shareholder. A derivative suit. Thank you. Um, in this case, we're not, we are confronted with an issue involving the futility exception to the demand requirement which is not a core issue of corporate law. Uh, This question uh, deals with the relationship between the shareholder and the federal court and what the shareholder uh, has to do before he is permitted to file suit in the federal court. Uh, It is not an issue of corporate law. It is an issue relating to demand, and as I mentioned, uh, we have a fully developed body of federal common law of demand stemming from this court's decision uh, in Hawes. There is an additional reason uh, for applying a federal common law of demand, and that is the need for uniform uniformity in the rules governing access to the federal courts. Legal proceedings in the federal courts should be administered under uniform, uh, predictable rules. May I interrupt there because I want to be sure I understand. On the review, I know you say it's not before us now, yes. but do you have the position there that that is a matter of state law? Yes. I then believe why under your, Burks. Why wouldn't your uniformity argument apply equally to that? Well, I... Uh, is that in last think, analysis, that's a question of access to the courts? Uh, I think that that argument is foreclosed by Burks, and we're not urging the overruling of Burks. Um, and also, I think that that issue more directly implicates the power of directors... Uh, which is a, uh, uh, a core issue of corporate law, whereas our issue deals with the right of uh, shareholders to uh, come to the federal court. 
we think that applying the uh, laws of the 50 states uh, to, with regard to the futility exception to the demand requirement uh, will result in uh, unnecessary litigation or what should be a straightforward matter. Uh, the virtue of a uniform federal law of demand is particularly evident under the federal policy that is reflected in the independent director provisions of the Investment Company Act of 1940. And in the Burke's decision, uh, this Court uh, considered those independent director provisions and uh, noted that those directors are to serve as watchdogs for the interests of all of the shareholders of the mutual funds. Applying a uniform federal law of demand uh, will help ensure that the demand rules do not evolve in such a way as to usurp the uh, watchdog role of the independent directors under the Investment Company Act of 1940. Um, as my Third argument, Your Honors, I submit that, that this judgment can be approved on the separate ground uh, that the Court of Appeals correctly held that the futility exception to the demand requirement should be abolished. Uh, this was a very straightforward rule and would require demand in all cases. Uh, we believe that abolishing the futility exception will benefit the federal judicial system without unduly burdening shareholder plaintiffs, uh, and that abolishing the futility exception is a natural evolution of the common law, uh, which will help sustain the vitality of the demand requirement. Uh, looking first at judicial economy, uh, when Hawes was decided, the federal courts were in, needed, were in need of protection from the collusive manufacture of diversity jurisdiction. And, and today, the federal courts are confronted with cases where the futility exception is routinely used in order to avoid intra-corporate means of resolving disputes. In each case involving the futility exception, uh, the district court must confront as a threshold issue the hypothetical fact-specific question as to whether demand would have been futile because the board is alleged to be biased or to have engaged in some improper conduct. Uh, we submit that requiring demand in all cases is preferable to expending time, money, and scarce judicial resources on this uh, hypothetical inquiry as to whether demand would have been futile. Mrs. Hall, yes, uh, your opposing counsel says that the demand requirement is not just kind of a mechanical thing where uh, you can abolish it and then everything will come out all right, the, come out the same way. And then, but the, the substantive standard of review of the shareholders' claim is much different under the law of most states where demand has been made and refused than it is where it's shown to be futile. Uh, do you agree with that statement? I do not, Your Honor. Uh, as, as we've been discussing, I think there is no logical or practical reason that you cannot separate the making of a demand from the standard of review. And the Court of Appeals said several times uh, in their uh, opinion that they were uh, not making any link between uh, the making of a demand and the standard of review to be applied to the Board's decision in dealing uh, with the demand. Uh, I think that requiring a demand will not place any undue burden on shareholders. All they have to do is write a letter to the Board of Directors of the Corporation. Uh, and that, in turn, allows the Board of Directors of the Corporation uh, to have the option 
of trying to take uh, some kind of action uh, which will obviate uh, the lawsuit. That does not place any burden on the shareholder plaintiff other than uh, mailing the letter. Uh, it's only at this second stage, which is not before the Court today, uh, the stage of standard of review of the Board's action uh, of that uh, in connection yes, with that. May I ask this, Ms. Hall? You're, yes, sir. You're saying one of your arguments is you'll save a lot of uh, skirmish, time skirmishing about futility if you have an automatic demand rule. But, but basically, the, when you allege futility, you're, you're alleging that the decision-makers are biased for one reason or another. They're beholden or they've got a financial interest. And is it not true that if you call for a demand in every case, the plaintiff will still make the same charges. Only say you can't rely on this decision not to litigate because the decision-makers are biased. So don't you get back to the same issue that you, as, as when you have a futility requirement? Not necessarily, Your Honor, because there will be a certain number of cases in which the board will be able to take action which will obviate the need for a lawsuit. Even that's not impossible after a complaint is filed, either. It's not impossible, but it becomes very unlikely, and the case law is very clear that demand futility is to be determined as of the time suit is commenced. Uh, the courts have recognized that as soon as a lawsuit is filed, uh, positions become hardened, uh, people become adversaries. Maybe we need more, more reasonable lawyers on both sides is what we need. There's no reason why that has to be true. It just happens to be true. Yeah, okay. Um, Your Honor, I think that this case is a classic example of a situation where a demand should have been made. Uh, if the fund directors in this case had been presented with a uh, demand instead of a complaint, they might very well have chosen to distribute a revised proxy material, even if they didn't think that anything was wrong with the original proxy material, uh, just in order to avoid the uh, delay and expense of this litigation. Yeah, but that wouldn't have done any good because they've already hired the investment advisor. It's already been approved. Sending out a, 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 a subsequent proxy statement wouldn't cure, if, assuming the original hiring was, was incorrect. Well, the, uh, the mutual fund must seek approval of its fees. Right, and, and the, uh, the hi hypothesis we have here is that they used a, an incomplete proxy statement to get approval of an improper investment That's contract. correct. What I'm and if later on you send out a corrected proxy statement, what good does that do? Well, if it uh, gives the shareholders the uh, opportunity to vote with that additional information, which petitioner claims they, they needed to have. Gives them an opportunity for a petition for rehearing, in effect. Right. Yeah. And uh, it uh, uh, obviates the need for a lawsuit on a proxy claim. Now, in this case, petitioner did not sue until six months after the shareholders' meeting. Uh, but even at that time... Uh, the board of directors, if they had been presented with a demand instead of a complaint, uh, could have called a special shareholders meeting and sent out revised proxy material and saved themselves the expense and honor of appearing before the Supreme Court on this issue um, seven years after the shareholders meeting. Or they might have appointed an impartial committee to resolve the question, uh, uh, as some corporations do, I suppose. That's correct, which, which would also avoid ever having to confront the, uh, the futility question. Uh, that's correct. Uh, Your Honor, uh, petitioner claims that the decision of the Court of Appeals was a revolutionary decision. Uh, we think that it was more evolutionary uh, and in the tradition of the common law 
and that uh, the decision of the Court of Appeals abolishing the futility exception will help to preserve the viability of the demand requirement. A petitioner basically is taking the view that no corporate director ever can be trusted to act uh, fairly and properly in considering a demand requirement. And it is this view that probably explains why the futility exception is eroding the demand requirement. If shareholder plaintiffs invariably consider corporate directors to be untrustworthy, then they will invariably decide that a demand would be futile, and they will always rush to the federal courthouse uh, to file suit without making a demand. Uh, The inevitable result is that the demand requirement uh, is eroded, and the rule adopted by the Court of Appeals, which eliminates supposed futility as a reason for not making a demand, uh, will preserve the viability of the demand requirement, and we suggest should be adopted by this Court. The allegations of futility in this case, Your Honors, were totally inadequate. I suggest that my client should no longer be required to defend against this proxy claim where the allegations of futility are so insufficient. These boilerplate allegations that the directors received fees for their services uh, and that they voted to send out the challenged proxy material uh, would not constitute futility under any applicable law. And this proxy claim should be dismissed, Your Honors, whether this Court chooses to apply federal law or state law, uh, whether you choose to uh, apply the futility exception or abolish the futility exception. Your Honor, we respectfully request that the dismissal of the proxy claim in this case uh, be affirmed. Thank you, Mrs. Hall. Mr. Meyer, do you have rebuttal? You have three minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, I will be very brief. Hopefully I won't need to use the three minutes. Uh, At the risk of helping my opponent, I believe Ms. Hall intended to have reference to page 17A of the appendix with respect to the discussion of futility. The last paragraph on that page, I won't take time to read it, but I think if your honors read it, uh, you will see that uh, the court below Uh, says both things, and it's pretty clear that it can't make up its mind whether the allegations are sufficient to establish futility or not, and therefore adopts a rule saying uh, whether or not futile, uh, we must uh, insist on demand in all cases. Uh, I should have referred before uh, to the Borak case as a case uh, which uh, insists on uh, applying the uh, federal standards, no matter to, to a proxy uh, fraud case, uh, no matter what state law would apply. And I submit that on that reasoning, which was adopted in Galef subsequent to the Burks decision, Burks is clearly distinguishable. Burks was that unusual type of derivative action that really was a business judgment case. There was no self-dealing involved in Burks at all. It was a question of whether uh, management made a business judgment mistake in purchasing Penn Central commercial paper uh, from Goldman Sachs. And in fact, prior to the decision, I think 
management had instituted an action against Goldman Sachs and effected a recovery. Uh, the only other point I might make is that on this question of uh, waiver of state law, the state law question was never really waived. Uh, it was never really raised by either party. Uh, we said uh, in our initial complaint we hadn't uh, really made any demand uh, allegations except with respect to 36B. On the motion to dismiss, we amended the complaint, added the demand allegations, and addressed the argument of the defendants uh, by saying we now have uh, allegations in the complaint that excuse demand. It's not merely a question, as, as you know from having read the, the papers, of the fact that they got paid for being directors. That would be simplistic. Uh, basically, uh, those are the points that I wanted to raise on rebuttal, and unless the Court has questions, I thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Meyer. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock. <laughs>